This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is April 22nd, 2021. Today, a bonus episode for Earth Day. You may have seen in the news recently that MSCI has committed to reaching net zero carbon emissions before the year 2040. Net zero is a hot topic these days, and commitments from companies to reach that milestone, well, they've ranged from Netflix's hyper-aggressive goal of 2022, that's next year, to the less optimistic goals of 2050 and even beyond for some. There are also many companies that haven't decided when or even if they can reach net zero, while others, they're at a loss about how to get started. As for MSCI, we feel that it's vital that we not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And so that means when we look at what we put out to market and what we suggest as best approaches to the market, that we ourselves look at those and adopt those as well. So we want our corporate responsibility strategy to support our position as a solutions provider in this space. That's Diana Tidd, MSCI's head of index and chief responsibility officer. On today's special release, we're going to speak with Diana and other key decision makers about MSCI's path to net zero as sort of a live case study. We'll explain some of the many things to consider when picking a target date and some of the challenges that may arise along the way. We'll also reveal how indexes themselves can serve as a tool to track global net zero progress. Our concern was how do we get people comfortable with this type of commitment, which is not an everyday type of commitment. It's a long-term commitment, right? It's, you know, how often are we making commitments out from 2021 to 2040, right? And putting it down Mm -hmm. to the world and saying, we commit to this, we will achieve this. But before we get to all that, let's start with a simple question. What is net zero and why is it important? I think this net zero concept, it means that you are capturing or, you know, through your reduction or reduction initiative or through using different, you know, offset mechanism as as a firm or as an investor, you are, you know, removing uh, as much uh, emissions as you emit from the atmosphere. So in total, your carbon footprint is at zero. In a way, it's, it's, it's quite a simple concept. That's Veronique Manu, MSCI's head of corporate responsibility. A few months back, a few governments uh, like the EU have made commitment to be net zero. Then it was followed by a few coalition uh, of investors also developing different frameworks and committing to be net zero. And then a few companies also like making some commitment to be net zero or carbon neutral or carbon negative. It's a global action now. And, you know, with the, you know, the COP26 uh, coming up. COP26, you may remember, is the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Paris Agreement. That's what came out of COP21. COP26 uh, coming up, the U.S. uh, getting back into the Paris Agreement. You don't have that many places in the world where you can hide and not be transparent on on your carbon emissions. 
right? So I think there is an increasing pressure from government to really uh, impose like greater transparency on companies to disclose their carbon footprint. We've seen recently uh, in several countries, right, the, uh, the TCFD report becoming mandatory for listed, listed companies. In fact, as Vero and team were working on MSCI's commitment, the business reality became abundantly clear when we received a request from one of our clients asking us to put our commitment to net zero into a contract. I think this pressure is going to be to only increase in the world we are in. Why are governments and companies so concerned with adopting net zero policies? Well, according to the latest research, we must, as a global community, reach a net zero economy by 2050 if we are to align with the 1.5 degree warming scenario outlined in the Paris Agreement. So, you know, this is really the hot stop, right, 2050. But it says no later than. So should we go with 2040, 2035, 2030? So that's kind of the, the first thing we're trying to figure out. But it's more than a timing issue. Net zero might be simple to understand as a concept, but it's not so simple to enact. For instance, how do you measure your carbon impact? As you probably know, as a, as a company, you have different types of emissions. You have your direct emissions, you have indirect emissions. So the direct emission is scope one. The indirect emissions coming from the electricity use is scope two. And you have all of the other indirect emissions, right? The emissions from your suppliers upstream and the emissions from your product downstream. So if we want to, to commit to be net zero, should we just commit to be net zero on our direct emissions, so scope one, or should we also include scope two, or should we also include scope three, right? And obviously, especially, you know, if you look into scope three data, that's where it becomes challenging because there are many unknowns in this space, and in particular, you know, in the supply chain typically. The process of reviewing and proposing the commitment really gets you thinking about how tangibly will you start to make these changes. There's going to be costs no matter what, right? There's going to be a cost if you don't do anything, right? Because then you're going to lose credibility with clients and with shareholders. You're going to, you know, you're not going to be able to acquire investment. You're not going to be able to acquire clients, right? That's I'm Joe Gagliardi. I'm the global head of corporate services at MSCI. I'm also a member of the Corporate Responsibility Committee. Many corporates uh, have started with what they really most directly control. What do they do to heat the buildings, to run generators for emergency power, things like that? The first thing you have to do is you have to measure, right? There are there are certainly well-established mechanisms to measure some of your greenhouse gas emissions, right? We, we know, for example, the actual electric consumption we have in various offices. So that's, that's very easy to measure. The consumption, we're really good at that now. Most companies are really good at that now. Our travel agencies are, for example, able to provide us very accurate emission estimates based on the actual flights our employees take. We have revisited and revised um, the sustainability criteria we consider 
when we're looking at buildings to locate our offices. It's a checklist that considers the green certification of the building. Is it LEED certified, for example? Does the building or the utility provider offer renewable energy? Uh, if they do, is it 100% renewably sourced or is simply a portion of it coming from renewables? Um, what about the building's accessibility to public transportation? Is it easy for employees to bike to? Uh, does it provide bike parking and showers, for example? Um, if employees are driving, what kind of parking does it provide? Does it provide charging stations for electric vehicles? As we said, the devil's in the details. And those details, they affect every employee who works at a firm with a commitment to net zero. There's clearly going to be a lot of ownership that has to be exhibited by every employee, right? So if we revise travel policies to really emphasize and require employees to make the most climate responsible decision, that, you know, that will have an impact to them. You know, first and foremost, we're going to ask employees in the future, you know, is this travel really necessary? What is the business critical objective that you're trying to achieve by traveling? Then the question is, how are you going to travel? Right? Are you going to take two or three individual trips to see two or three different clients? Or are you going to try to bundle that all into one trip? And then if you are going to take that trip, if there's a viable train or other high-speed option available, can you take that instead of getting on an airplane? So we all must change our behaviors to select the most carbon responsible you know, way to travel, uh, to step up with how we engage with our supply chain. Okay, that's the second time we've heard the supply chain mentioned in as many minutes. Why is that? Ultimately, engagement with the supply chain is critical to understand those scope three. Ah, yes, scope three emissions. The ghost in the shell. The elusive, hard to measure, but definitely real, up and downstream impact of producing goods and services. Say you have an office. And say that office has a kitchen. And say in that kitchen you have paper plates. Great, you might think. I don't have to do the dishes. Or, actually, better yet, say you have ceramic plates. So, yes, you do have to wash them, but they're better for the earth, right? Well, there's a carbon cost associated even with those plates. One that could vary greatly depending on who produces them, where the materials are sourced, how far and by what method they're shipped, and you get the idea. It's complicated is what I'm saying. So we've made a lot of progress in those scope one and scope two, right? At this point, 90% of our employees are located in buildings that are certified. Uh, we've made significant progress in switching to renewable energy. Uh, at this point, 70% of our purchase of electricity comes from a renewable source. Um, all of our data centers, they run 100% on renewable energy. The most controllable part of this, we've made a lot of progress. Suppliers, scope three, you know, that will, you know, that will take some more time and, and, and much more engagement with our supply chain, for example. For us, we felt like it was really important to look first in the mirror at ourselves and say, what are the direct emissions that we control? And then how do we make changes to those? At the same time, we'll definitely be engaging the suppliers. One example is we have a supplier code of conduct 
we've had one for several years now, we're looking at modifying that to be very specific about, you know, needing our suppliers to represent, to disclose, to manage, to measure their carbon impact. So understanding your scope one and scope two emissions, I get that. Getting a handle on where you are is a first step. Changing what you can makes sense too. But engaging with vendors. You know, group projects always make things much more complicated. And it's not just your vendor. Your vendor has vendors, and they have vendors, and they have vendors, and so on and so on. The rabbit hole here gets very deep. And that brings us to these things called carbon offsets. Credits that companies can buy to, you know, offset the carbon they produce. You might ask, oh, that's great. If I know what my carbon impact is, why go through all this trouble and potentially disrupt business when I can just buy an indulgence, basically? You know, you have now a variety of pledges, right, from 2025 to 2050. And if you look at those, right, like you you have like certain companies at 2025, but to be honest, I think most of those companies, what they're going to do is just buy offsets. This is definitely uh, something we should not do, right? And this is one of the key risks here. And actually, you know, there's been lots of bad press these days on this because, yeah, the simplest way would be, fine, I have my carbon emissions. I don't need to do anything. I will just buy offsets and I'm done, right? And this would be like... It doesn't make any sense from a climate standpoint, but I think, you know, obviously from a reputational standpoint, it would definitely be um, be really bad. What it's, it's important to do also when you consider this commitment is to develop a comprehensive strategy to reduce your, uh, your carbon footprint. And the first step in this strategy is to look at how internally, through your own action, you can reduce as much emission or as many emission as possible, right? So that's that's really the first objective. Then, you know, in a second step, there will be unavoidable emissions, right? I think we, we all know that, that there will be some unavoidable emissions, again, because for employee commute, for electricity use, even... You know, even business travel, I think it's very difficult to, to think about a world in 10 years' time where people all work virtually and don't meet each other in person. There's a lot of things that, you know, are kind of outside of our control, but as those become more widely available, you know, we'll, we'll have the ability to reduce those emissions. But until then, there, there are going to be unavoidable emissions, so offsets can help you bridge that gap. As far as offsets, you know, true carbon offsets, those typically refer to projects that, you know, for example, maybe introduce carbon sequestering, right? So the classic example is planting trees, right? Um, you know, we want to support those, I think, and those, you know, are appropriate uh, sometimes to to offset you know, what is unavoidable. Um, but the risk is that over time, demand for those offsets is going to rise because everyone is out there saying they need to, you know, either get to net zero or get to a place where they're, in some cases, removing more carbon than they even put out. 
right? So the price for these offsets over time, as the demand rises, the price we think is also going to rise, right? There are estimates out there from the World Bank and other sources that, you know, what cost you ten or twenty dollars today could cost you one hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars at some point in the future uh, per metric ton to remove kind of the impact of a metric ton of CO2. So the cost to remove our carbon impact over time could be much more than the effort it would take and the cost it would take to simply eliminate it at the source. So while some use of offsets might be unavoidable and even necessary, at least in the near term, the key to a global net zero economy is global action. Or as Diana put it, we all have a role to play in achieving net zero and avoiding a climate disaster. Our stakeholders care about our commitment to lowering our carbon footprint and also committing to net zero. And as various groups start to engage other groups to drive their action as well, it creates this virtuous circle of commitments to net zero, and then we all help ourselves achieve it. And it's also essential that the investment community has a gauge of the progress. And so for MSCI, one important aspect we thought how we can help is not only putting out, for example, ESG ratings and warming potential and other metrics that are available to the investment community, but also to look at ACQUI and ACQUI IMI and saying, okay, at the current rate, What's the warming potential of ACWI and how long would it take us to achieve the goals we're all seeking, so 1.5 degrees? And if we all engage with those companies or act as corporates ourselves, then ACWI can actually move to be net zero sooner by the action we'll universally take. And so we're now committed to reporting on the progress of ACWI in terms of warming potential and essentially net zero so that the investment community has a gauge of how we're all progressing on our path. And that's what's meant by the phrase greening of ACWI. That's what's meant by greening of ACWI, exactly. As we all engage and the companies underneath take it on to themselves and take on um, the feedback from their stakeholders to commit to net zero themselves and lower their carbon footprints, ACWI itself essentially becomes green, one company at a time. Right now, looking at that exact measure, The world is not on track to achieve its 1.5 degree goal, not even close. Instead, we're on track to hit a staggering 3.5 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century. Is there any hope? Can we make it and, as Diana said, avert a climate disaster? The other day I was actually uh, uh, listening to a panel on uh, net zero and there was a poll the, the question was, what is the proportion of companies that have committed to net zero uh, that are actually going to meet their target? And um, like the majority of respondents answered less, like between 25 and 50 percent will meet their target, right? So I think the majority of people think that, yes, companies have commitment, but most of them won't meet their commitment. So we, we decided to go for 2040 to make sure, you know, we commit. We're going to be committed to report on progress regularly over time, right? So I think that's definitely key. The transparency aspect is very key. We are on the same boat together. 
there are some uncertainty, there are some challenges, and, you know, we should do that all together. So we're going to share lessons learned with you. We're going to be, we want to be transparent uh, with you on the progresses that we, we make. We really want to communicate and share um, so that we can all collaborate and achieve that goal all together. Last year, as the world and even this podcast focused almost exclusively on the pandemic, many of those we spoke to noted there were lessons that we could take with us as we tackled climate change. That was the crisis standing off to the side, waving its arms and shouting, hey, I'm still here. These lessons include cooperation, sustained focus, and perseverance in the face of setbacks. Let's hope we learn them and that they stick. We'll continue to follow this story on perspectives as it evolves. 1.5 degrees of warming might be our global end goal when it comes to climate change. But as we've heard over the course of this episode, net zero and net zero commitments especially, well, those are only the starting points. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Diana, Biro, and Joe, and to all of you for listening. Next week, with lockdowns lifting, economies restarting, and stimulus flowing, questions about inflation continue to come up as well. We'll look at the impact on equities and fixed income. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.